So a couple of uh, summers ago, I was up in Boston for a couple of days with a few friends. It was fun. Uh, kind of bounced around, hit a lot of the sights in the city. Uh, one afternoon, we went over to the uh, John F. Kennedy Library and Museum, which is pretty cool. If you, if you go to Boston, I think it's worth a, a visit. It's, uh, it's on the, the campus of uh, University of Massachusetts, I think. It's right in the water. Uh, it's the Charles River. And they got all kinds of exhibits, just stuff you'd expect about Kennedy, his life, his presidency. They had a, uh, yeah, an exhibit on um, the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, the 1960 election, Jackie Kennedy, the assassination. Really interesting stuff. There was this other exhibit uh, that really caught my eye. Um, and it was interesting, there weren't, it wasn't too prominent. There really weren't a lot of people going, stopping into it. They were kind of, kind of looking and then just kind of moving on. And I'm so glad I went in. Um, it highlighted Kennedy's last trip to Europe in 1963. It was the summer of 63. He went to Germany, Ireland, England, and Italy. I think over the course of about nine or, nine or 10 days. But it was the trips to Germany and Ireland that were highlighted. Because what happened was sort of unbelievable. Um, in fact, that's really what this exhibit focused on. It, it was those two visits. His reception in Germany and in Ireland was like not to be believed. It was, uh, the crowds were just massive. And his message, his speeches were just so powerful. Um, you know, he went to Berlin. This was really the highlight of the German trip. He was at the Berlin Wall. The, the wall had only been up about two years at that point. 1963, the Cold War. The communists built this wall, as we know, to preventing people from East Berlin from, from leaving. They were essentially imprisoned in this now communist country. So he gave this speech right at the wall, essentially. Hundreds of thousands of people. They say over 400,000 people were there. He was speaking to the people in West Berlin because they were on the free side of the wall where he was. But they weren't the only people he was speaking to. In some respects, I think he was speaking more to the people whose freedom had been stolen on the other side. It had been stolen by this oppressive, godless, violent regime. These are the words of Isaiah, we just heard him. Listen to this, kind of in, that, in the context of Kennedy at this wall, talking to the people on the other side of it. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, 
a light has shone. You know, the unfree side of Berlin, that was the land of gloom, where freedom and hope had been kind of crushed. And then Kennedy's there and he's speaking these dramatic words of hope to both sides. He delivered this blistering attack on the evil of communism. In fact, they said, you know, there was a prepared text that all his people put together. And much of that he, he went with, but then he also, they say he improvised stuff in, in the final hour or two before it was delivered. And he kept going, he kept using this refrain. He kept saying, let them come to Berlin. And he was kind of, he was just doing these, these comparisons, these contrasts between people who were free and people who were not. People who were free and people who were oppressed. Us and everybody in the land of gloom, essentially. And every time he'd make one of these comparisons, he'd say, let them come to Berlin. And the place would go crazy. And each time he said it, they got louder and louder. The third time he's getting ready to say it, he said it in German. And they went beyond crazy. People were like hanging out of windows, up on roofs of buildings. They were hanging on like a light, street lights on each other's shoulders. People were weeping in the streets. And when he said it in German, they just were like, in fact, at the uh, library, there's a, a copy of the, it was an index card that he got somebody to do the translation and then he wrote it out like phonetically because he, he didn't know German, so he wanted to pronounce it properly. Let them come to Berlin. He said, freedom has many difficulties, no doubt, and democracy is far from perfect but we never had to put a wall up to keep our people in, to prevent them from leaving us. And then his most famous really line from this not even very long speech, he says, um, I am a Berliner, but he says it in German again. He goes, ich bin ein Berliner. And they just erupted. He was like a king. The response of the crowd is kind of, it's unreal. In fact, I, I, put, it, we put, I put it on the uh, Beach Catholic website. There's a little six-minute video of most of his talk. Check it out tonight or whenever. It is worth it. If you're looking to be inspired, man, watch this footage. You know, the speech has been studied, critiqued, and it's considered one of the great presidential speeches ever. It's this amazing expression of hope and light and truth. And he speaks it in their language. It's like he becomes one of them. And when he did that, I mean, they were, they were loving him before it, but this thing started building and building this, you know, let them come to Berlin. And then when he speaks their language, it's just this eruption of emotion.
I mean, that's kind of what we celebrate today. That's sort of what our faith is about. He speaks our language. God comes to us. We don't even have to go to him. He comes to us. And he speaks to us in ways that we get it. Because he shows up in the form of this baby. Well, when you thought things couldn't get crazier with Kennedy in Berlin, then he went to Ireland. And it was maybe even more crazy. For different reasons. There weren't issues of freedom and lack of it. Those issues weren't really at play in Ireland. But what you had in Ireland with this trip, first of all, he was the first sitting American president ever to visit Ireland. He was the great grandson of four Irish immigrants and he was Catholic. So the crowds welcomed him like he was one of them. People lining the streets, you would have thought like the Pope was visiting. It was just massive. Visiting cousins and his family, relatives. You know, in Ireland in the 19, early 1960s, unemployment was terrible. People were fleeing Ireland as fast as they could for a better life. Because there wasn't a lot of hope in Ireland, at least in terms of economically. In the early 60s in Ireland, in the country, in the rural areas, they didn't even, most people, did, they didn't even have indoor plumbing. I remember when my grandmother, my grandmother lived with me growing up, well her sister stayed in Ireland. I remember in the 70s, the early 70s, they got an indoor bathroom. I was like, what? I couldn't believe it. So now picture this American president, this Irish-American Catholic president coming to these people who were struggling. And he was one of them. You know, that exhibit in the library, it probably should have taken eight or nine or 10 minutes. A couple of different videos, a couple of little artifacts that were there like enclosed in the wall to, to read about. I stayed there for almost a half hour. Like I just, I kept watching these images over and over again. I got all choked up at one point. I was like, this is, Man, like that, that the prospect of an American president being so inspiring. Like why? Why was, why was those, why did that, those two visits warrant an exhibit? He'd gone to many other places and said many other things. Well, I think partly it was JFK, right? He was just, he was so articulate and he was a great speaker and he was kind of cool, kind of like a rock star. But it was more than that. Because he got more than rock star treatment. 
I just think he communicated hope. So much light, so much hope in darkness. The darkness of, a, of an unfree, oppressed country. The darkness of, of people in another country struggling to just survive. And this guy communicated hope and light. I mean, isn't that kind of at the end of the day, isn't that really what Christianity is? Isn't that what Christianity does? It's hope and light in those places that are dark. Where people live in the land of gloom, Christianity comes to the rescue. And it's kind of like, what, I think that's sort of what was going on with JFK, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying he was the Messiah. We know he wasn't. And with the passing of time, we know even more that he wasn't. But he tapped into something, and he wasn't just a showman. I think in those moments, he was light and hope. I think we're all called to be exactly that, like bearers of light and hope for people who are in the land of gloom. You know, when we fail to see light and hope, when we fail to communicate light and hope, then we become statistics of despair, don't we? I mean, watch the news. How many more stories do we need to hear? How many more surveys and polls which talk about societal sadness and despair and loneliness and disconnect? It's like that stuff, the dark stuff is exploding and faith is going the way of the dinosaur. Don't you think maybe there's a connection between the two? People are maybe more sad than ever and they've forgotten about God more than ever. We reverse the God thing, we reverse the darkness thing. We up the Jesus thing and the gland of gloom becomes a small, small and smaller place. Listen to this. True story, I was trapped in an elevator, not me, this is the person saying this. I was trapped in an elevator in a Manhattan high rise, all alone. This was exactly what I'd been afraid of when my best friend asked me to come see her new apartment. I was a wreck. I'm very claustrophobic. I know it's not rational, but phobias aren't rational. Unless I wanted to climb 18 flights of stairs, this metal coffin was my only way up. So I said a prayer and went for it. I was doing okay until the elevator car jerked and then came to a halt in between floors. I tried taking deep breaths. Feeling faint, I sank to the floor and tucked my head between my knees and I began to cry like a baby. I was coming apart. Maybe because the next day was Father's Day, I thought back to how Dad had comforted me when I was a kid. He'd say, catch the kiss, as he puckered up his lips. He'd blow a kiss and then I'd laugh and run around the room, grabbing handfuls of the invisible. 
Had I ever told him what those moments meant to me? Now I might not ever get the chance, not if I suffocated to death in this elevator or if the cable snapped and I plummeted to my death. I know, not rational. But like I said, phobias aren't rational. I thought I was gonna die. Trying to dry my tears, I rummaged through my purse for a tissue. My hand bumped into something hard. It was the, my, it was the mini tape recorder I used for my classes. She's a teacher. Thinking she was gonna die, she said to herself, uh, I'm gonna send recordings to my family, to the people I love, and I'll express my love for them because I don't think I'm gonna see them again. This is what she was thinking. So it's what she did. She began with her father. and She said this, Dad, so this is the recording. I remember you at the playground, how you stood at the end of that blue slide waiting to catch me. I'm all grown up now, but I can continue to count on you to be there for me when I'm scared. You never let me down. In my mind, you'll always be the giant that met me at the bottom of that slide, and I'll always be yours. Happy Father's Day, Dad, I love you. Suddenly, she says, the elevated, elevated doors slid open and an emergency worker was there, and I nearly leaped into his arms, and the ordeal was over. So now it's the next day, it's Father's Day. She's with her parents and she gives her dad this tape recorder. He's looking at it like he thinks she, that's the gift, a tape recorder. He's a little confused and she said, no, no, press play. So she does and he listens. Then he said, this is the best gift you could have ever given me. She says now he was wiping away tears. Little did I know at that time that it would be our last Father's Day together. Dad was soon diagnosed with an aggressive cancer and we lost him within five months. It took a little while before I could bring myself to sort through his things. There was a bag of belongings that he had at the hospital. A couple of magazines, a book, but at the bottom of the bag, I was startled to find that tape recorder that I had given him. So I rewound the tape and I pressed play. She just wanted to listen to her message again. I thought of my words and I hoped that they had comforted him in, the final, in his final days, the way he comforted me my whole life. She said I was about to turn it off when I heard the sound of someone clearing his throat, it was my father. Dear Kate, when you find this recording, I won't be here anymore. Know that I love you more than life. You're the greatest blessing a father could hope for. When you close your eyes, listen for my voice and know that you're never alone. I'm with you always. Just before the recording clicked off, she said, I heard the unmistakable sound of him blowing a kiss. I reached up with both hands and clasped them together in the air, catching something invisible, something that had never been more real. You know, we can be that. Light and hope. Hope and light. 
She was for him. He was for her. Like we can be that. President of the United States, 400,000 people, probably not. But that father, his daughter, we can be that. Christmas says be that. Light and hope in the dark. Be that.